At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to the sixth transmission of Weird Signal, a podcast about all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here, as ever, with Lucy. Hello. In this transmission, we'll be staying firmly within the territory of war, drugs and demonology. This episode, however, we will be looking not at a vision of war in the near future, but a war in the uncomfortably recent past, Vietnam. Okay, well, so uh, basically, over the course of this podcast, we've talked a lot about the Cold War. Um, That's in terms of how it ostensibly provided a theoretical framework for the original meaning of hauntology in the Derrida definition, Uh, but also because it served as this great kind of activating agent for so many of the kind of uh, paranoias and strange ideas about humanity and as, as we keep saying humanity is a status in the universe and those those foundational tenets of the weird and the eerie um, but we haven't really spoken that much about Vietnam which is kind of when when the Cold War got hot as it were as it as it did more or less constantly um, it was but... a, it was a, it was always more of a simmer it was a not a roiling boil rolling boil it was more of a simmer war yeah but that was but this is when uh, yeah Vietnam and and the Cuban Missile Crisis were probably were the real flashpoints, and um, Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Uh, so there were there were always these indirect proxy conflicts yeah. going on in Vietnam as well. That had a kind of the the narrative of that conflict as one um, that had that was kind of a slow reveal and kind of developed as the Cold War developed. Because, I mean, technically, America first became involved in um, 1961, I believe, was when kind of um, when America was finally pushed into the conflict. Um, and that was uh, helping the kind of South Vietnamese government and the French. Um, but it had kind of been more or less going on since the end of World War One, or kind of the development of the, uh, of, um, the Viet Minh and the kind of the, the formation of these... Uh, kind of rebel powers that would eventually become the Viet Cong uh, started as kind of, well, started effectively as kind of anti-Japanese agents trained by the Americans, trained at arms by the Americans, much as the Mujahideen would be trained to fight against the uh, Soviets in the Afghanistan conflict. That does seem to be a recurring historical theme, doesn't it? Yes. Interesting one. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so it basically, it started out as a uh, essentially a war of colonialism against the occupying uh, French uh, colonial powers of Indochina, um, but and, and against the South Vietnamese government, which was very, very, very closely aligned, obviously with um, the with uh, Western powers. Yeah, and was essentially a fa- was essentially a, a family dictatorship by a bunch of uh, Vietnamese Catholics mm. who would um, system who are sort of systematically denying the uh, rights of worship to um, the Buddhist uh, majority and enforcing uh, Catholic cele- celebrations and traditions onto them, and obviously they weren't particularly pleased with all of this. Mm. And then, kind of as the as the war gradually escalated, it became shaped by the kind of the overarching narrative of the Cold War, because you know that it was primarily a Russian project rather than a Chinese project, as the Korean War had been. Um, the kind of in, uh, communist involvement in the Vietnam War. It became kind of part of the uh, the Truman Doctrine, the kind of Western powers uh, policy of containment for preventing the spread of communism in Europe and Southeast Asia and South America and really, you know, all over the place, anywhere communism could uh, could take root. But um, Vietnam was a very, very different conflict uh, from 
a lot of what had come before and really kind of changed the narrative of conflicts for the latter part of the 20th century. One of the main things is that it was um, it was a war against a guerrilla force that was blended into the civilian population. Um, and so it wasn't like a straight war against a conventional army. And one of the things this meant was that uh, they lost a kind of focus. Um, they lost a kind of... Uh, they lost... A framework for a coherent outcome, much as in the same way the Americans are doing in now, now in Syria, it was turning into the kind of the model of the forever war that we would see in Canada, uh, in, uh, in Canada, <laughs> in Afghanistan, and and in Iraq, um, and now gradually in kind of Yemen and Syria and places as well. Um, but as well as that, it was an incredibly long war. It was um, over ten. It was like thirteen years, although you know. It, it, really like several decades if we're taking it was like the world, entire conflict it's like world war Two had been in arguably that had been kicking off so like long before germany invaded um mm. poland it was it it um the conflicts that become the vietnam war had been going on for a very long time uh, before the uh, certainly before the american involvement yes but i mean even the american involvement was a particularly long one and the fact of its kind of incredibly protracted nature meant that a lot of the kind of darker elements of 20th century warfare which had been kind of going on in co uh, sort of a covert situation um since since world war one since the 19th century were now kind of gradually bubbling to the surface and people were becoming aware of just how fucked up these things were getting um and a lot of what this revolved around was this idea of counterinsurgency uh which has more or less become a buzzword of a lot of kind of modern conflicts but had its origin in, in terms of the Vietnam War, this is really where we saw it escalating uh, in terms of both the strangeness and the diversity of what people were doing, uh, but also the um, just the, the growing public awareness of these things, the gradual kind of leaking of the information. And um, it refers to things like kind of psyops or um, psyops, black ops, um, covert operations and the kind of darker, dirtier elements of war. Uh, that really kind of characterized a lot of um, Vietnam in the popular imagination. Um, but this idea of counterinsurgency actually had its origins in another French war, the war for uh, retaining the colony in Algeria. Um, that was um, that was kind of made very famous in uh, kind of in a similar way to Vietnam became a focal point for a lot of um, a lot of left-wing sympathies uh, towards um, kind of non-NATO forces and um, and kind of an interest in the third world. The Algerian conflict had a lot of similarities to Vietnam in that it was a former French colony and it was a, rebel a resistance against that, uh, but it was a resistance based in uh, the civilian population. And it saw kind of the introduction of this new type of war, which was uh, referred to as counterinsurgency. And this was... Um, essentially uh, formulated by an individual called David Guala. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, blog post, actually, which we'll link out to uh, by Adam Curtis about um, his experiences of how he formulated this. Um, and it's, ten it's really kind of an explicit response to kind of Maoist doctrines of, um, of kind of decentralized warfare. Um, but then kind of this, um, a lot of the, this was kind of escalated into the Vietnam War. So we had things like kind of CIA operations. We had strange things involving drugs, involving psych operations. And, and we had some very, very charismatic and well, very, very strange and crazy figures um, 
able to practice more of their kind of fringe theories with a great deal of license. Uh, people like uh, Michael Aquino, you mentioned. Michael Aquino was a uh, he was a very, he was a high ranking priest of the Church of Satan. That's Anton Lavey's Church of Satan. But various various shits went down basically, and him and a bunch of other people split from the Church of Satan because they believed in the literal existence of a supernatural entity called Satan and established a new occult order called the Temple of Set. Um, during all of this, Michael Aquino was also um, uh, in the Americans in, in PSYOPs. He was in military intelligence and he uh, published like books on this. He, he wrote articles and theories about this. Um, he looked at very dark stuff like the, the uh, strategic potential of the neutron bomb and the like. And uh, he eventually retired a, a le retired a lieutenant colonel in military intelligence um, at the end of his career. But he was he was stationed in Vietnam, and although I don't trust entirely trust any of the sources I've read about this because they're written by and uh, by sympathisers of of Aquino who have actually been somewhat deceitful about their own identities, but I won't get into that. Um, but apparently, but he was stationed in Vietnam and he was doing psyops work there, including supposedly. Um, using kind of black magical techniques as a uh, as terror tactics and uh apparently flying around the helicopter like broadcasting demonic shrieks to try and uh, terrorize the enemy i'm not sure how much of any of this is true but he was there and he was doing he was doing pretty freaky shit you know yeah and it's like and it's it's like you say this this idea of terror essentially what a lot of um counterinsurgency amounted to was literal terrorism using terror against the population as a way of kind of winning an ideological war, or at least kind of psychologically battling down uh, the population, both civilians and covert military agents, to the point of submission in order to kind of shift the balance of power. So what we did is we did it in Northern Ireland. We, yeah. would, um, send out we would send out essentially death squads to terrorise Catholic civilians. And it's kind of no surprise that this became sort of um, where the model of kind of modern conspiracy law was crystallised, this idea that this is literally what the government could and is doing in um, places that they think people don't necessarily give a shit about it back at home. Um, and like you said, this kind of led to a, um, a very mixed response to the war uh, amongst the civilian population. A lot of kind of, a lot of sympathizers with the Viet Cong, um, or Viet, the Viet Minh, so dubbed the Viet Cong in another kind of more, more um, abstract sense of this uh, management of perception, this kind of uh, psyops. Um, Viet Cong sounds scarier. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, we, we had people like, uh, Bob, who's Barbara? Uh, Jane Fonda going out and posing with the uh, the North Vietnamese, and that was all very interesting. But um, but then kind of then it did just degenerate into this incredibly dark conflict, not just in Vietnam but in um, in uh, Cambodia as well, which was kind of like it was like what had been happening with Vietnam before the Americans were officially involved. This kind of gradual creep of subversive dark forces coming in and like this this war that was officially you know not really even supposed to be happening but it was uh, but it was spreading over but then in in Cambodia we saw we saw some incredibly odd things happening as well and that kind of that is a huge part of the kind of legacy as well yes exactly because um it was never quite as what the Viet Cong were doing was never really quite as bad as it was made out to, which wasn't which isn't to say they weren't doing despicable things and that terrible things didn't uh, didn't happen uh, under them and didn't happen after they won. But it was never quite the screaming horror that it was made out to be. Um, unlike Cambodia under Khmer Rouge, 
where what happened was so absolutely horrifying that people simply refused to believe that it could be the case that something as terrible as this could be happening. And when you had um, the Kuma Rouge decide, like declare, literally, literally reset the calendar to year zero and said, we're doing this again, we're starting civilization again, an entirely new kind of civilization. They disband, they're forcing the urban populations to uh, move out into the countryside, being very, very comfortable to let vast waves of the population die off or just um, outright murder them because we're creating a new kind of human. We're creating, they, they had these horrible sayings um, where they referred to um, the new people who are the urban populations that required re-education. They would have these mottos like um, it, it, um, it benefits us not to keep you alive and it costs us nothing to kill you. Yeah. Because they, um, I think, I don't know the numbers, but I think it might, must, I think it was about a quarter of the population were wiped out by this government. Mm. And the response from the left in the West is to deny that this was happening for the most part. Or the refugees who were fleeing the country uh, because a lot of them were at least perceived to be coming from the country's middle classes, were treated with um, a lot of a lot of suspicion from the left on grounds that well they're just saying you know these are class enemies and they're just saying what the Americans want them to say, but very quickly it turns out no that this is true everything they're saying is true Kumi Rouge are monsters Pol Pot is a monster they're doing something absolutely incomprehensibly evil in a very short period of time as well. And it's Vietnam that goes in to sort them out in the end. It's yeah, not... they were kind of the moderating ally force um, who would be taken a lot more seriously than, Amer- than the Americans or Europeans in this. There's something almost hyperstitional about it, that um, Khmer Rouge becomes what everyone was afraid Vietnam was. Mm. And does it just ramps it up, um, accelerates and escalates it. So they weren't like a democratic Campuchia, as they renamed the country. They didn't exist for very long. It wasn't a particularly long-lasting regime because it just, like a regime that's psychotic, can't sustain itself for very long. And But in that time, they wreaked um, uh, astonishing atrocities mm. towards their own people. And it's, it's interesting as well that um, it's in these... Basically, as we see kind of the... the structure the the progression of the century we see a shift in the model of uh, wars being fought from the former colonial struggles of the previous century and into the uh, kind of america soviet centric uh, models of the later part of the century this idea of uh, this evolution um and it's it's kind of it's in these former it's in these kind of colonially tinged wars that we see these very very strange ideas coming out and that's something something to think about for another time but kind of what what aspects of colonialism were really kind of preserved in our conception of how these people would respond to um to western influences and it's kind of like this i think just vietnam and you know the war in indochina the what in you know southeast asia the southeast the american involvement in southeast asia it was kind of like it was the strangest war um essentially because we we talked a lot about the last episode with things like the the moderation of uh, media coverage of iraq and things and the um the strange kind of hyper reality of what was happening creeping into west the western mindset from that but this is kind of where we see a lot of these things being uh, really formulated and it's interesting as well just that this whole idea of um, of Vietnam as having this immense impact on on the way people thought about war, because I mean, as I said, it was like its significance was it was not just like kind of it was the main war, it's the big war that America lost, um, but it also shattered this idea of um, America's own kind of manifest destiny. 
and you know and kind of that was that was the whole mo- uh, the whole kind of anti-communist thing going on from um from very really the end of the second world war and um and yeah it's just kind of we see actually kind of in in the way vietnam's been treated in the media people being aware of these things even from like the 1970s and 80s onwards we have things like apocalypse now we have that very famous scene where the helicopters roll in and there's that big assault on the beach and then as martin sheen turns around and there's just like movie cameras are rolling yeah Fran- <laughs> literally francis ford coppola is playing a director filming the vietnam war it's crazy yeah but um but yeah it's it's just it's just kind of insane and it's kind of it's this that made it the big the big kind of cultural war for America and it's kind of become a cliche to say that it it never ended but for the case in the case of um of both the country at large and the people fighting in it um their reality was shattered and it was never really reassembled um and you know we get this idea of kind of Vietnam psychosis um but that is kind of that is what Vietnam means in the context of the 20th century in our kind of idea of its progression. And that's why we are talking about Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder is a 1990 uh, film directed by Adrian Lyne and written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who won an Oscar for writing the screenplay of Ghost, interestingly. The film follows Jacob Singer. Serving in Vietnam in 1971, Jacob and his squad are attacked and start to display very strange behaviour, almost as if they've been poisoned or going insane. Jacob is stabbed in the gut with a bayonet and drifts into unconsciousness. Sometime later, Jacob is living with his girlfriend in New York, plagued with horrifying hallucinations, seemingly stemming from the trauma of the war. He is also plagued with flashbacks to his life before the war and the death of his child, played by a pre-Home Alone Macaulay Culkin, who is as eerie as ever. (laughs) As the film progresses, Jacob continues to ail both physically and mentally, and discovers that his fellow veterans have been suffering identical demonic hallucinations. Eventually, he discovers that his squad were the test subjects of an experimental combat drug called Ladder, which causes the subjects to descend into a murderous, sadistic rage. They weren't attacked by the Viet Cong, they were attacking themselves. What's more, it transpires that Jacob and his comrades did not survive the attack. What appear to be flashbacks to Vietnam are, in fact, the present. Jacob and his fellow soldiers are drifting away from this life into another one. The demonic hallucinations they are experiencing are stages of this process as one life slips away and they enter into a new realm of being. Okay, so we usually um, hold off editorialising until like the end of the episode, but I think it kind of uh, Jacob's lab necessitates a bit right up top because... Um, full disclosure, this is this is the first film we've covered so far that I'd not actually seen before we made the decision to cover it. And um, there's a lot going on in it. Basically, um, it, there was a lot of difficult. I had a lot of difficulties in like approaching this from a in a from a critical perspective, just because 
it seems to be like essentially two separate films happening. It's like um, it, yeah, it definitely feels like more than one script kind of bolted together uh, yeah. in a way that. I think you disagree with me here, but I don't really think all of the elements of this film actually conjoin in a particularly satisfying way. I feel it does feel like it should have been all of one thing or all of another thing. I don't want to sort of like I don't want to sort of kick off our discussion here by being negative about this film because it is an interesting film and we have lots to say about it, mm. and I think it does succeed in quite a few areas. Um, but. It's such a strange film and such an oddly unbalanced film that mm. I think we both feel a little bit uh, I, about, about I mean, talking about it. I think it does add up, but but it requires a certain degree of analysis to add to actually kind of reconcile these elements. Um, that is kind of like I think more analysis than is really warranted for a popular film of this nature. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of like. When I when I tried to describe it, um, the best I could come up with, and because well, we've talked about um, we've talked a lot about hardware, the previous episode in in this context, the idea of kind of hyper reality and um, the manufacturing of perception and stuff. But in terms of this film, I think um, this is best thought of as like a combination of uh, "Don't Look Now" and "Shivers." <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like kind of the two the two main kind of currents that are running almost seemingly. Um, seemingly exclusive of one another is this idea of kind of this grand theological drama um uh, with all these ideas of christianity and buddhism but also um the also the fact that it is a conspiracy film um so like in terms of like how this i think it's like what we really need to do is just kind of approach both separately then try and try and try and bring this together but and then much like jacob's ladder try and bolt them together in a way that will satisfy no one uh but might entertain you along the way yeah so i mean like the the whole idea of kind of conspiracy cinema i talked earlier about kind of how uh, the modern conception of conspiracy was formulated during the 1970s and the latter part of Vietnam. Because uh, um, there's also Watergate, which really hammers at home uh, a hell of a lot of this. But yeah. um, that's it for another time. And, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was when it was in that period that we saw kind of conspiracy cinema emerging as a genre with things like... Um, with things like the Parallax View or the Manchurian Candidate, which had all sorts of ideas of mind control or psyops or kind of like shady government manipulation. There's also the British film The Ipocris File from uh, the 60s, which is a very, I would call it, it's an espionage thriller, but it definitely has very, very major conspiratorial uh, and mind control and mind disruption uh, themes going through it, which I think we'll, uh, we might even cover it. We might even just uh, cover it at some point later Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of this, in terms of Jacob's Ladder, this was kind of 1990. So um, it was already kind of a very established genre by that point. And there were a lot of things that, um, that kind of had become familiar tropes that we see almost all of in Jacob's Ladder. We've got things like uh, the furtive meeting with the doctor, who's like a defector from the project. Uh, and they have this kind of, they go to an abandoned warehouse and have this very, very kind of like tense, sincere heart to heart about like the nature of what they were doing. Um, we have things like uh, sinister agencies operating through public services that they've kind of infiltrated with their agents. Um, we've got things like a car abduction by two like anonymous heavies on the street who say like don't investigate this uh we've got the um we've got the like previously positive now badly intimidated lawyer who just wants out we have car bombings we have, we have literal car, car bombings. bombings and and yeah and so 
but yeah, in terms of what we were talking about earlier with the um, with the presence of drugs, uh, one thing that I think needs to be said about the Vietnam War is the fact that it's kind of it's associated with drugs on a, in a couple of different ways because you know it emerged out of the '60s, which was you know the psychedelic decade where drugs um, became kind of very much connected with popular culture in the in the in the kind of public imagination, and it was seen as this kind of countercultural force or this kind of liberatory presence. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was just it was just kind of everywhere. Like, um, like I think it was like within a couple of years of the Vietnam War, a disturbingly high uh, proportion of the soldiers fighting in it were addicted to heroin and other substances just because they were just because of the sheer quantities of them that were available there at the time. This is the flip side. On the one hand, there's the liberatory dimension to um, the psychedelic revolution, and then there's also the new vistas of uh, all the new avenues of control that it opens up. Yeah, because we're if we're thinking just like this is this is America's strangest war. It's this a melting pot of hyper reality and that everything that surfaces from it is like kind of is just i think films like jacob's ladder and apocalypse now sum up very well with just the 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 sheer intensity of the psychedelic unreality of the images and the colors and the kind of lurid saturation of everything involved and you know we've got those wonderful night scenes in apocalypse now um where he's like kind of emerging out of the water and there's all red light around and like Mm. if you think vietnam that is what vietnam is for a lot of people just strange things strange unreal things happening in the shadows um we should do apocalypse now oh god we absolutely need to at some point um but in terms of um but in terms of kind of like how uh, the drug angle in um, in in um, in Jacob's Ladder fits in, it's one of those things that is sort of out of joint with a lot of um, what that just doesn't quite work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in particular, um, when they describe the drug project, which they refer to as like they refer to it as the ladder, but it is based on a real life uh, drug project that was tried out on soldiers. I think it was like. Um, there's that thing right at the end, the dis, um, the just note. Um, the, uh, there's an epigraph at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of subject substance BZ or something like that. Um, one of the things that it it kind of brings up a very interesting question about kind of the nature of what how this was involved in the war because on a certain level it doesn't make sense because. Um, Vietnam was a very, very different conflict. It was incredibly complex and required a certain type of training for its soldiers. Um, and what what he's describing is basically turning turning all the soldiers into making them go berserk, turn them into berserker mode. Like this is some sort of medieval battle where um, if they're just these out of control things, they're going to be insuppressible like rage machines. But that, for one, that doesn't work in a in a war where it's a battle for hearts and minds, and you're uh, your enemy is incredibly elusive. What you need is extremely rigorously disciplined soldiers. You don't need berserkers. You need terminators. Exactly. Um, like contra the um, the um, um, contra piece of drug fueled berserkers that we get in uh, Jacob's Ladder. We have um, Kurtz's speech uh, from towards the end of Apocalypse Now, where he talks about the uh, the task is to create these soldiers of absolute and perfect discipline and he talks about how you know sort of like uh, these men filled with love uh, these very moral men can be transformed not into rage machines not into rage fueled monsters but into uh, people who will just absolutely do what is necessary and they will do it joylessly and passionlessly importantly they will simply 
do what is required what is required they will execute the task at hand mm. and that's that and that's very much kind of what uh the film uh film stanley kubrick's film metal jacket also picks up the first half of the film is entirely this kind of training regimen where they're trying to create the appropriate soldiers to fight in anything like vietnam they're turning us into very specialized kind of killing machines um that is kind of uh dissect kind of dissecting them breaking them off from their humanity and sometimes it works but other times it just doesn't work and they flip out like goma pile and um and yeah and that's kind of that's one of the things that is very very odd about why this was chosen as the focal point in jacob's ladder i knew what would happen i warned them i fucking warned them One other thing that doesn't quite work in terms of the reality of Vietnam and its presentation in Jacob's Ladder is the fact that we didn't need to um, we didn't need to create berserkers. That kind of happened because um, we we saw soldiers going completely out of control because they'd been so brutalized by the nature of the war, by the protracted um, by the protracted length of the war, by the horrible conditions they were fighting in, and the sheer frustration. Um, at not getting any kind of solid results from what they were doing. And that culminated in things like the Malay Massacre, where, um, where some, some GIs just went AWOL and massacred a village. And there was, there was a lot more of that than we even really, um, really heard about, but that was kind of the big one. And that did a lot in terms of shaping the public imagination, uh, pu- the, the kind of public uh, response and the public distaste for, for the war and what we were doing over there. We're seeing kind of the, uh, in Jacob's Ladder, we're seeing kind of the outcome of that, which is someone whose reality has been permanently shattered. Um, But then it turns into this other thing. It turns into the theological drama, which requires kind of a a very kind of in-depth analysis in and of itself, which I believe Sean, uh, in customary fashion, is about to deliver unto us. I have to my left two very thick books. I have an introduction to Tibetan Buddhism by John Powers, and I have David Bentley Hart's new translation of the New Testament. You're in for a real (laughs) wild ride here, listener. This this is all entirely necessary as well, because, I mean, that's the thing I was saying earlier about the fact that like there was a lot more kind of a lot more background reading and a lot more dissection um evoked by jacob's ladder i feel than than was really necessary (laughs) or at least should have been foregrounded like that i mean not to say it's not an enjoyable film for that reason but but yeah there's all this stuff about like mr eckhart and the buddhist thodols like what 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 is this what are we talking about here oh so i'm gonna uh, um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna start with buddhism and i'm gonna sort of begin this was saying I, i'm not i'm not a buddhist this is me trying to understand something that is very very uh, very very foreign and alien to the western uh, imagination so i'm going to do the best i can here so one of the major influences on uh bruce joel rubin was the uh was the bada thodol or the tibetan more commonly known as the tibetan book of the dead Buddhism puts a, uh, a lot of emphasis on cultivating a, uh, a correct awareness of death and mortality. One of the fundamental insights of Buddhism is this uh, notion of impermanence, that um, everything is in flux, everything is constantly passing away just as new things are coming into being. And of course, one of the great impermanences that we will encounter in our own lives all of us inevitably is our own impermanence that our life will end that we will die that we that our bodies will rot and transform into new things and along with that there's in buddhism in tibetan buddhism there's the belief that the uh, the mind not quite it's not quite analogous to the western notion of the soul because it doesn't have a notion of permanence to it but the idea that like soul stuff or mind stuff 
also transforms and becomes something new during the process of death. Uh, and it's important to emphasize the idea of death as a process uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist imagination or in their uh, mythos, their understanding of these things. It's not a, um, a point, a barrier which you smash into and that's that. There's this a process whereby someone dies, which goes and there are the physical elements of this um, that we that we are more familiar with in the West through medical science, but there's also these interior elements of it of um, of decaying awareness of the world and one's own place in it. Uh, and importantly, one of the teachings in Tibetan Buddhism is that a uh, a really really skilled practitioner of meditation and uh, and tantric and yogic techniques can actually kind of take control of the death process. Uh, the dying person is confronted with very disturbing sounds and images and other sensations. If they, and if they haven't been prepared for this, they will be confused and baffled by this because they feel that they are uh, under assault almost by all of these different really powerful sensations that are coming into them. But if they've been properly initiated, they realise that they themselves are the source of all of these sensations, all of these um, frightening encounters they appear to be they are happening these are hallucinations they are stuff that's coming out of themselves uh, during the death process uh, one becomes gradually detached from the world one loses awareness of the uh, of the people and the places and things that were important during our lives uh, we lose the ability to discriminate between sensations and to discriminate between things and eventually, uh, one arrives at the state where Western science would de declares that death has occurred, that physical death has now occurred, that the person no longer exists. But in the Tibetan tradition, uh, this isn't when death happens. That after the body finally shuts down, the mind stuff continues its own kind of process of um, death and putrefaction almost, I suppose. And that the consciousness actually continues to inhabit the body for a several days after physical death has occurred. So the body won't be moved or interfered with in that time because the soul stuff is still permeating it. It hasn't migrated yet. Uh, they also believe that the manner of one's death um, is indicative of what the circumstances of one's uh, rebirth will actually be. Just going to read a brief uh, extract from this book, Introduction to Tibetan Buddhism by Jonathan Powers, where he says, Just prior to death, there are certain physical signs that indicate the dying person's most probable rebirth situation. If wind and mucus move in the left nostril at the time of death and physical warmth first withdraws from the area of the left eye, mm. the dying person will probably be born as a human unless something is done to reverse this tendency while in the bardo, that's in the, the death state in between incarnation. Uh, alternatively, if the dying person's hands shake and he babbles incoherently, and if physical warmth first withdraws from the area of the right armpit, the dying person will likely be reborn as a demigod. Those who make animal sounds with their mouths and whose body heat withdraws at night will generally be reborn as animals. If a dying person's skin turns yellow and its glow fades, and if he feels hungry and emits semen, this is an indication of probable rebirth as a hungry ghost. Uh, finally, when a dying person's right leg shakes uncontrollably, his body heat exi exits through the sole of the right foot and he simultaneously emits saliva, urine and excrement. This indicates that rebirth in the hell realm is likely. Mm -hmm. And the reason I read this out is this gives you an indication 
of the nature of um, of the Bada Thodol of the of the Book of the Dead. That it is this very curiously rigorous examination of the actual death process mm. with a very precise mapping of the events and the meaning of the events of death and that's kind of that's something that seems to be picked up on a lot kind of unconsciously in the process of the film because even though like this is you know effectively some sort of hallucinatory hallucinatory episode or kind of structured created reality there does seem to be a kind of weird grounding with the physical reality of the human or the soul of the dead deceased human at the center of it because you know he has these kind of these periods of intense sickness uh he gets an incredible fever and um and you know that as and you know that that could kind of be thought of in terms of like is he is he experiencing this kind of is he experiencing this all in the moment of death and is his kind of cognitive soul interacting with his physical form to try and shape these things or is that kind of the physical spiritual battle happening internally and i think i think also that's you know that's that's also possibly where the body horror angle comes in because i remember seeing kind of when they had the bits where like uh i think uh flashpoint moment is just in that um that scene where he's in the hospital and the nurse leans over and she's got these growths coming out of her and i was i thought at one point in that it's like it's going to go in a kind of more um more cronenberg direction he might start experiencing these kind of growths and things as well um but that didn't really transpire but that's interesting kind of how that that seems to fit in with the more buddhist reading of um of this of this of this piece of this film eckhart saw hell too you know what he said he said, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of your life. Your memories, your attachments, they burn them all away. But they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. Relax. <clears throat> Good. So the way he sees it, if you're frightened of dying and, and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. It's just a matter of how you look at it, that's all. So don't worry, okay? So although there is a uh, an unquestionable Buddhist influence on this film and how it's approaching death and its understanding of death, especially death as a process, um, I, there is also a Christian dimension to it. Like what we're seeing is a very kind of Christian tinged interpretation of like good and evil uh, in a more kind of um, in a more kind of monotheistic sense, which is actually more quite alien to and um, the Buddhist way of thinking. Which isn't to say that they don't have conceptions of goodness and evil, obviously, but it's almost fr- it's framed. But um, karma it frames it differently. It's almost more to do with uh, the idea that um, just actions produce reactions. Um, Getting lung cancer if you're a lifelong smoker is not punishment for your cancer. It's the result of your smoking. And the result is a, is a, is a deleterious one. It's, a, it's not one you want. Uh, while, while obviously in the Christian tradition it is very, very different. It's more focused on um, moral responsibility for one's actions. Um, so we mentioned earlier that Meister Eckhart is um, cited in this film. I 
did set out with the ambition of, oh, I'll get up to speed with Meister Eckhart before we record this episode. And then I got this book, a uh, an introduction, sort of like an introduction to Meister Eckhart, and it became obvious very quickly that um, I would not be able to get to grips with such a complicated and academically contested um, theological legacy, as is Meister Eckhart's. Again, we can't really reasonably expect a popular cinema audience to have read this before going into the film as well. (laughs) I am not confident that the quotation that we hear from the chiropractor is present in any of Meister Eckhart's teachings. It very well could be, because like I said, I did I did really try, but it became obvious that I do not have enough time to get to grips with this uh, with this thinker. Um, it, I, I, I'm just going to say that sort of, like, suffice to say that Meister Eckhart, very influential mystical theologian in the West. The West doesn't really have that many mystical theologians. It's kind of just, you know, no, no, it's not true. We do have quite a few, but not in the same way that East, the Eastern tradition has a much more emphasis on mysticism. But he has a very contested legacy. Everybody reads everything into him. Um, there are, like, very orthodox Christian readings of Eckhart, and there are readings of Eckhart which are openly and completely unchristian and totally unorthodox. They're going in a completely different direction. So that's a thing. But um, what I can talk about is I can talk with at least a little bit of confidence about um, Christian notions of um, afterlife and especially focusing on the notions of, of, of hell and purgation. Because there's an obvious hellishness to what's happening to him. Mm. He's having horrible hallucinations of um, demons torturing him and persecuting him. Um we can't get over that these things are here so i think it is really i think it is relevant to understanding this film to spend some time with the origin of these notions in uh in christian theology and the christian mythos uh, so the uh the cultural idea we have of hell of the christian hell in the west is that it's this realm of eternal suffering where demons torture sinners and the devil reigns over it like a king now this is not a scriptural idea of hell this is kind of like an Im- various folk beliefs coming together with more propagandistic sort of expressions of hell from the catholic church especially in medieval times mm. i mean one of the one of the core texts that they seem to reference in the film isn't uh, kind of the bible so much as uh, dante's inferno which is you know a long kind of medieval poem about the interpretation of hell but an interpretation of hell based on um on kind of later scholastic readings of how hell was con- con- contrived and one that is kind of weirdly blended with a lot of classical teachings as well. Um, and, you know, and that's what actually, um, that's almost the role of the doctor because we see that brief glimpse of the Gustave Doré engraving of, um, is it Vir- it's Virgil leading Dante through the, um, through the underworld. Um, and that is, you know, that's essentially what the doctor is doing with uh, with the guy. It's like uh, he's his um, the chiropractor. With the, yeah. Um, oh, I, I thought the I thought the doctor, the uh, not the doctor, no, 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 the um, the, the 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 chemist, the government agent who uh, was oh, the okay. defector. He oh, was, okay, sorry, I thought he, you talked about someone else. Yeah, no, I, I think I think he's the Virgil in this situation because he's the one kind of being the spiritual guide. But I suppose the doctor could be a kind of analog for that as well. But it's no, someone... I, think, I think the chiropractor. His his chiropractor is clearly the it's clearly meant to be the angelic presence. I mean, he does literally call him an angel. Mm. He does say, 
you're an angel, like a great big fat cherub. But not so- as he and he says this as the chiropractor is leaning over him, and behind his head there's a lamp that gives him a halo. But he's this like, is not a subtle film. He's a, he's. A, I mean, the 90s were not a subtle time. Um, but yeah. no, as in like no, but as in like he's the angel, but then is the uh, is the defector. Is he the first century Roman poet? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at here. Is the chiropractor Beatrice? Oh. oh. We'll cover this in the Dante's Inferno episode. <laughs> in the 18 part, and we're planning on that. Anyway. Well, like... technically, 36 is a math for uh, because we're going to have to do uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso as well. You know? Oh, well, clearly. clearly. Naturally. Naturally. Um, okay. Hell. Let's talk about hell. Okay. okay so the actual like, um, the actual scriptural takes on hell, or the ideas of hell you actually get if you sort of like examine the Christian tradition more closely, they're very, they are, it's just different from the folk understanding of it. It is quite different. And, I'm, and what I'm referring to most here is uh, David Bentley Hart's new translation of the New Testament, where he's tried to render it as close to the original literal Greek as is possible in English, which in quite a few places isn't possible just because of the vast differences between the two languages. And um, Hart is of the Eastern Orthodox tradition rather than the Catholic tradition. So what he points out in his notes to the text is that there isn't a word in the New Testament that really corresponds with our word hell. And what you see in most of the translations of it, like the King James translation, is the word hell is used very ju- like is used judiciously throughout to refer to various different states in the afterlife. And really, there are three different words, none of which really quite mean hell, that the New Testament uses. Um, these different, I'm going to call them death zones. <laughs> um, so the closest one we have is Gehenna, uh, which he also, which he, uh, or the Vale of Hinnom. There's Hades, which is kind of a neutral term that refer that was the underworld in Greek is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. Uh, and then there's, I think there might only be one usage of this last one in the entire, in the scripture, there's Tartarus, uh, which is in Greek mythology is very close to our idea of hell. I mean, it was virtually, point to be virtually identical with it. Um, uh, but in this context, it's specifically referring to where fallen angels and demonic spirits are kind of trapped until judgment day. Oh, this is where it's going to get quite tense, I'm afraid. So, Jesus refers to the Vale of Hinnom or Gehenna. And Gehenna was an area outside of the city of Jerusalem, which for reasons that aren't entirely clear, was regarded in Jesus's time as cursed. It was a it was a bad place. It was a, Staten Island. Staten Island. <laughs> uh, it was associated with death, with purification and punishment for one's sins, with suffering, with the sacrifice of children to pagan gods. It's all sorts of nastiness. Great Yarmouth. The Staten Island of East Anglia. (laughs) Uh, The connotation that Gehenna would have had for the audience of the Gospels is not somewhere you want to go, ultimately. It's not where you want to go. It's a site of divine judgment and divine punishment. So what Jesus states in the Gospels is that the penalty for sin or well, actually not so much the penalty for sin but the alternative of entering into the kingdom of god is to be thrown into or to enter into the veil of Hinnom. the van- the the language that he uses to talk about it um which you know the fire that can't that shall never be quenched and the, and the worm that dieth not nice. uh, this is the traditional eschatological or apocalyptic language of jewish culture at the time that's what that you know you those are the 
phrases and images you use when you talk about when God punishes or and has punished Israel for faithlessness. So Gehenna is associated with um, wrath and judgment for Israel's failures to failure to follow uh, God and it's been argued by some New Testament scholars that the references to it in the Gospels might not even be referring to an afterlife at all but it's just referring to the impending judgment that's going to fall on Israel when Jerusalem is like within the decades after the writing of uh, the Gospels when Jerusalem is uh, destroyed and the temple is destroyed so well that's that, that's that's one interpretation of it but um so what does Jesus mean when he talks about people going to Gehenna? Well, we don't know. We, we, we don't know what Jesus means. But we do know that Gehenna was regarded by prominent Jewish sects of the time primarily as a place of purification and penance rather than an eternal torture, ju- torture dungeon. Uh, indeed, the Greek word used in the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is um, where Jesus just says, sort of like when the uh, when the day of days comes, like the righteous and the sinners will be separated, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And but when he talks about the punishment that the goats have impending upon them, the word in Greek means chastisement or reformative punishment rather than retributive. Though Hart does point out that it is possible, and he leans against this, it is possible that this is, was an imprecise use of the word uh, in, in the scripture. Uh, at any, but at any rate, there aren't any references to a recognisable image of hell in the epistles of St Paul, which predate the writing of the Gospels, nor in any of the other pieces of, ap- of apostolic writings. Those are the writers by the apostles or the people that the apostles directly taught. It's not mentioned in the Gospel of St. John. It's only mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark and Luke. And many of the patristics who are the uh, like the great theologians that came sort of like close, that's in the first few hundred years of the church, like um, Origen and Gregory of, Ni- of Nyssa, believed, just like to, always took it, like they didn't even need to argue that what the New Testament means when it talks about Gehenna's, it's talking about a, a form of purgatory. It's talking about where we go to be punished for our sins on our way to God rather than where we get locked into. Why, the reason I'm talking about all of this is the idea of the Christian afterlife being one of, rather than being an eternal torture dungeon, but rather being a purgatorial or experience of painful purification and rectification, is actually one that has a lot of precedent in the tradition. Especially, and you, this is especially obvious if you examine the Eastern tradition of the of uh, Christianity. Uh, well, the Catholic tradition has put a lot of focus on this punitive aspect of it, and has put and does hold as a dogma that there are souls that will, will, will spend eternity in hell and will never know God. Hmm. The Eastern Church has generally avoided making dogmatic pronoun- uh, pronouncements on those matters on grounds that not much has actually been revealed to the Church about the afterlife and about the apocalypse they but they there's a very very powerful tendency and tradition in the eastern church to first to believe that eventually all souls are going to end up in god's presence anyway and that it will be more a matter that for some souls those that reject god's love this will be an unpleasant experience while for others it will be a blissful one but again this isn't even really a matter of punishment it is closer to what i said before like, if you smoke, you get lung cancer. If you reject God's love, and one rejects God's love by 
not showing love to others ultimately then the consequence of that is that one is trapped with oneself in this sort of in a prison of one's own making and that is hell that is that is hellishness rather than something punitive mm. so with it comes to, when it comes to this film it seems almost more that um trying to sort of like create a synthesis between these two very different traditions what's happening to jacob and what is presumably happening to the other vets the other veterans is that they're going through this process and it's really really nasty and frightening because they entered into it unprepared spiritually they weren't ready for death they hadn't set their souls weren't prepared for this so their experience of going through the process of death or the journey to or uh, or the journey to god is one that is extremely uh, frightening and unpleasant because they experiencing um their own hang-ups their connections with the world being torn away their own sense of guilt their own sense of uh, sin and wrongdoing or bad karma weighing them down the demonic manifestations that they're encountering are things are from the buddhist perspective they're just things they're creating for themselves or from the christian perspective are traps that they might be falling into or alternatively are just the prisons they're creating for themselves because they haven't understood what's happened to them yet uh and uh, thus concludes bible study with uh, father sean for today i'm going to hell that's as straight as i can put it and don't tell me that i'm crazy because i know i'm not they're coming after me who is they've been following me They're coming out of the walls. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what this reminded me of, this whole emphasis on, like, it's not just one individual going through this, this journey, but a whole group of people kind of bound together, um, essentially all men as well. It, one of the things it reminded me of a lot was The Voyage of St. Brendan, if you've ever come across that. I've it's not, this, no. It's this really weird kind of uh, hagiographic account of, um, well, of, of The Voyage of St. Brendan, where <laughs> he takes kind of, he's, he's referred to as Brendan the Navigator because he sails a ship with this, um, with this uh, band of monks that he's taken out to this sort of, it's been a while since I've read it, but he goes out to this magical island, which is essentially this kind of semi, um, semi-real space between um, Earth and the divine and between Earth and paradise. And um, it goes into, it's essentially like their journey through this, uh, this place where their, their trip seems blessed and they, they encounter all sorts of very strange things. They encounter a tree filled with birds who are able to kind of communicate um, and, you know, I think present these kind of weird coded messages of things. And, um, and also, you know, they've reached this point where time is kind of frozen because this is what the world will be like out well this is kind of like this is the immaterial world outside of time um but then like there's a bit of internal drama that happens there because one of them has stolen a thing that they were presented with during their journeys which is i think they, they pick up a sil- uh, kind of piece of gold a golden talk and so they've essentially tried to enter heaven but carrying sin with them and um someone you know brendan obviously being a saint and very attuned to these things picks up on this and he um he then brings that, you know, he, he, he calls them out and says, one of you has sinned and then um, expels from him this demon in the form of a young Ethiopian boy. Um, who's oh, like, wow. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Like, this is um, not only being like this bizarre, sort of racist, weird mythical tale, but also it's one that's picked very much um, from 
from an earlier saint's life, which is that of Saint Anthony, who was a kind of, who's pretty much like the first, um, he set the model for the kind of monastic life. He was this extreme ascetic who bound himself alone in the desert and was set upon by demons. And there's a whole kind of artistic history there. But that's where you, that's kind of um, where the um, the character of the demon of fornication in the form of the Ethiopian boy comes from, as well as the golden talk, because he's tempted with like gold out in the desert. He doesn't pick it up, unlike this um, ill-fated brother did. Um, it's but- interesting that sort of like a sexual spirit, as it were, a sexual would be, would be embodied in the male form in this context it is yeah i mean there's i mean there's it's a whole huge amount to go into but um, I mean, it's, it's all i mean specifically by which i mean it is it's that um it feels it's, it's pederastic true we, yeah which is the uh and there is um okay we've not finished with bible study yet uh, <laughs> yeah. and there is a very good argument against a controversial point that the um new testament pro- apparent new testament prohibitions on homosexuality may very well have been referring to pederasty because that's what male-male love means if you live in classical antiquity mm. or what sexual relationships between two males means in classical antiquity. So that's, I don't know, maybe that's a little uh, a, spec, a little bit of speculation there, but maybe that's, that's, that's a, something a to think on at another that. time though. But but I think kind of in, t- in the context of that film, the significance is that uh, even though like a lot of this is based very much on kind of like um, theological teachings and things, a lot of it seems to be kind of um, the presentation of hell in this context is cribbed from what are kind of medieval conceptions of hell and kind of that were influenced by classical mythology and also by kind of folk tales and things. Um, we get like like the Saint Anthony thing comes up as well. I mean, I'm gonna gonna devote a whole thing to this but basically i think kind of the saint anthony legend and the presentation of demons was the origins of body horror or really you know the origins of body horror was kind of um kind of you know, it goes back to kind of the serpent really the the change and physical ability to mutate one's physical form being inherently associated with evil um but yeah during there's a very very elaborate artistic uh tradition emerging from the 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 persecutions of saint anthony which I've, I'm going to release a whole thing on this, but basically, um, there was I think there was a mistranslation where he describes in the original Greek of the legend, it's described as um, the demons appearing in the form of wild beasts. So like one is a bull, one is a lion, one is a snake, because demons are um, because changing a form is natural to those who are evil. Um, but then in the Latin translation, this was just presented as diversus wild bestas or something, um, or bestas furiosas, which is basically a diversity of wild beasts. And what people took this to mean in um, the Middle Ages was that they were chimera and they were composed of all sorts of different animals bundled together, <laughs> like you know, these horrible um, compound entities, which is kind of, which, you know, people did a load of like really terrifying psychedelic um um, artistic depictions of but that's again like that's what we're seeing in this film we're seeing kind of like um we're seeing demons and demonic forms mutating or kind of presented as corruptions of the divine um the divine model of humanity so we've got the nurse who's got the growth coming out of her head we've got the the person metamorphosing into a demon on on the dance floor where they kind of um, start groping his girlfriend and um, and then we have like the hospital scene with all the things uh, all the kind of horrible like messed up humans and that whole mutilation sequence um, but yeah and also that they're kind of there seem the demons seem to be existing on another time frame because they move wrongly they are kind of um, 
move too quickly. They yes. move too quickly. They're like outside of appropriate t- timescales and things. And it seems to be like some sort of reality crashing in on itself and revealing its own sinful nature of materiality. But again, that's, that's for another time. But in also in terms of like the religious presentation of this film, we have a very, very interesting take on kind of how women are presented in it as as like you said kind of inherently sexualized and inherently sinful we have this very elaborate kind of madonna whore complex thing coming in very strongly uh with the juxtaposition of his current girlfriend and his ex-wife um who's like um who's kind of the mother of his children and is weirdly like even though he's split up from them and it's it's implied early on that she's the troubling kind of ex-wife figure um, and his girlfriend is is the one who cares for him. Um, she when she appears, she's kind of this divine kind of Madonna figure, uh, trailing innocent children. <laughs> but again, that's sort of subverted because like the girlfriend does does become good and then bad again. Um, whereas like the children in that scene are like complete brats and are like don't seem to be all that concerned that their dad's in hospital. But yeah, and that's that's um, that's something that is kind of played on and something that deserves kind of dissection of its own but just the idea that like the women in this are just um are just props they're kind of agents for a theological message um and we also have like a kind of maiden mother crone thing going on we've got the maiden of the girlfriend the mother and the crone who's like the nurse or possibly the palm reader who's like according to this line you're dead in a really unsubtle move early on in the film (laughs) do we reconcile these two apparently unrelated currents in the film okay um well in my notes i sort of (laughs) kind of like 11th hour decision i i thought it sort of made sense if we thought about it in terms of um why it's set in new york and kind of the the place of new york in this entire bizarre cosmic drama that just seems to be uh unfolding around us and our good friend jacob (laughs) (laughs) and uh so yeah i mean like i think i think that the setting of new york is very kind of important on um on a number of levels because it's like it's this it's got this unique status as a city in the american story because it's like even you know it's kind of like it was the model for urbanism in a lot of cases even though like technically i think chicago was the one where they started building in kind of skyscrapers and things after the great fire um it was new york that we think of as like cosmopolitan america and has its own kind of unique status in in that respect and um and you know that's that's going back to like kind of the early 20th century but in in kind of in in the kind of 200 300 years of its existence it's also had this um had this quality where it seems to have become kind of almost a separate entity from the United States as a whole but at the same time is a crucible of all the kind of greater drama of the United States in its kind of in its in its in its great national story because I mean it was um, the first point of origin for first arrival point for lots of immigrants so it's got that whole kind of immigrant narrative to it and also it um if we you know i know 9-11 was obviously 11 years after this film was made but it was it seems to be like well if anything that cements the mythic status that was already building up i mean new New york has always been new york yeah it's like it's just inherently dramatic it's got this kind of inbuilt um inbuilt sort of mysticality to it it's where movies happen yeah and i think it's actually uh, there's a quote from um there's a quote from jean baudrillard who um we haven't really 
we've talked a lot about hyperreality, but we haven't really talked about Baudrillard that much. But he um, he kind of frames it because he he did this big long treatise on his trips to America, um, which kind of reads a bit like travel writing, but has some very interesting moments. But he. Well, he starts saying that there's no cops in New York, which I would dispute, but elsewhere they're seen as a modern urban look to cities that are still semi-rural, brackets Paris is a good example. Here, urbanization has reached such a, such a pitch that there is no longer any need to express it or give it a political character. Anyway, New York is no longer a political city, uh, and demonstrations by its various ideological group, groups are rare and invariably derisory. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's the status of, the status of urbanity. Um, but in the in the kind of American story and over the course of the 20th century, I think particularly in the 70s, in terms of what, 70s and 80s and what you see in cinema, it's kind of it's a place where people fetch up because uh, fetch up when things haven't gone right, because um, because it because it's got this kind of um, it's the polar opposite of the rural kind of conservative 1950s American dream where people were living in kind of nuclear families and going everywhere by car. Um, it's seen as kind of you know a darker, more seditious place, but also a place where one could. It's seen as kind of where one goes when one when one fails at that and needs to start anew. I think <laughs> it's worth mentioning as well that the that the image of New York that we now have is that it was is, that it is uh, glamorous, it's sexy, it's exciting. But for the in the seventies and the eighties, there's a very different image of New York as a, that it is a dark and violent place. Oh it's, God, yeah. It's the escape from New York. It's, yeah. it's the place. It's the place which makes the most sense to cut off from the rest of America and just dump all, all of the um, all of the lunatics and the, was, and the criminals. Yeah. Maybe it's the war. You can't spend two years in Vietnam and expect... Uh, How does that explain barricaded subway stations? How does it explain these fucking creatures? Creatures? Jake, New York is filled with creatures and lots of stations are closed. And a lot of the kind of class disparities were really kind of hammered home in like how how the different neighborhoods generate their own mythology around them. Um, and you know it's like, but also you know it had it had kind of a possibility of renewal once you'd hit rock bottom. I think that's kind of it's a, it's a difficult and kind of tenebrous concept. But I think these all sort of link together, and I think that's why that's why it's significant that a kind of badly mentally damaged Vietnam veteran winds up there and it's the setting for his own great internal struggle. Um, but it's, it's purgatory. Yes. And I, and yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of, this is kind of tangentially related to the conspiracy angle as well, but it's got, I know it's almost kind of a cliche to talk about things being Kafka-esque, but I think like it's, it's an appropriate one in this instance because uh, Franz Kafka was the uh, your author of the trial and the castle and things. He's he's the godfather of institutional horror, which is kind of like uh, connected to conspiracy culture in a in a in a number of ways. But um, but all the kind of all the main kind of scares that we see in the film take place in things that are inherently tied to great kind of civic or municipal structures. Um, given ex the first example being, you know, it, the 
the first um, demon encounter is on a New York subway uh, where he's on a train, he gets off and then he's at a like, kind of a, a disused station and it's got this kind of mystical quality to it or, you know, he's walked into a, some sort of cursed place. But at the same time, that can just happen because sometimes things go wrong and a station that's closed down might still be uh, stopping trains there. Um, and then he, he kind of walks, he goes through the tunnels and he enters kind of this labyrinth thing and he looks through the windows and there's, there's demons and stuff there. It's the, and it's, you get the sense that he's wandered into a great kind of uncontrollable entity, or not uncontrollable, it's an entity that's dark and it's controlled by this nebulous, ambiguous force behind it, which is largely automated or um, organized by people who are only aware of their one small part in this great dark machine. Um, but, you know, we also have things like the fact that he goes to hospital and it's in the kind of like the dark back rooms of hospitals where the strange things happen um, that are being, that are the kind of conduits to this dark underworld as well, I think, have have an element of that as well. That the that the kind of the deathliness or the strange, you know, the high strangeness is inherently tied with what are distinctly New York urban structures. Um and and also, you know, the um, the fact that things are happening underground also have their own resonances with kind of uh, theological structures. Not you know, obviously, there's the kind of early Christian thing that we were talking about briefly in um, in our last episode with the Philip K. Dick segment, where we were saying how like uh, Christianity evolved in caves and underground places before in being catacombs. in catacombs before being brought out into the light. But also, then we have things like the underground cults of Mithras, um, which are which are kind of like a sort of Persian uh, semi-pagan thing that was concurrent with early Christianity um, and yeah I, I think kind of I think that I think the fact that it has New York has this inherently strange status as a place it just kind of it's what brings all these things together and it if anywhere is if anywhere we're going to kind of reconcile the American story and the, the shattering of the American story with a great grander theological narrative it would be in New York so I think I think that's not a that's not as I proposed earlier a solution to this film but it is like I think it's a good access to it and I think also the theme of cities is one we're going to uh, cities and the urban weird is one that I definitely want to talk about uh, in more detail in um in later film and later episodes um but yeah so we haven't really done that good a job of summing this up. We've just, if anything, created more questions. Um, <laughs> well, if, if um, all we've done is create some more interesting questions than we arrived with, uh, I think we've done a good job, mm. personally. Um, and one or two, like, kind of semi-tangential points, but um, talking about uh, how this connects to the weird, specifically weird fiction, we've got two, um, two kind of literary connections there in the... Uh, Lovecraft, a lot of his writing, his kind of mid-period writing before the kind of great legendary things came in, that was set in New York. And if we want to kind of have somewhere to kind of uh, expand thematically um, this film, it could be in something like his New York stories, like the horror at Red Hook or He, both of which kind of, both of which have a large number of eerie similarities to this film of like strange, strange occulty things happening in happening in New York. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think. Um... I think perhaps more with he than uh, with the horror at Red Hook. Although horror at Red Hook, I don't, I don't no, know. That's I got... specific. That well, the horror at Red Hook, I think, is so specifically to do with his um, 
Well, they're both racist, but mm. I think that whole Red Hook is very, very specifically tied up with his anxieties about um, Im- about uh, immigration, mm. and um, especially specifically to do with um, Western stereotypes about uh, the Yazidi religion, mm. which which was taken to simply be um, a, literally to be satanic. But then uh, again, you know, that's that's at least some foregrounding to the New York, the picture of New York that we then arrive. Yeah, at I mean, his film. image, his image of. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, I don't think those stories have any kind of real particular parallels ex- with this film except for the fact that they are inspired by his terror and it is his terror of uh, New York but body horror things happening underground <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, that's for another time another but, time but um, um, yeah because yeah, for Lovecraft New York is um, because he's got coming from this you know the rural provincial setting mm. of Providence Rhode Island to New York, to the metrop- to the burgeoning metropolis, that is extremely traumatic experience for him. And indeed, there is a pa- uh, there is a shift in his racism. He goes from being quite standard, kind of like faintly paternalistic, chauvinistic in his racism, to being no, we we have to keep them out. We yeah. have to build the walls. We we have to build the wall to keep them out mm. to keep our civilization alive. We have to get rid of them. And he starts. That's when he. There is a jump. There is like a a movement in his racism into something far more severe and far more paranoid than it was before. And it is born out of his um his revulsion of the city of New York and the people there and the th- and for him the things there because mm. you because to an extent. Then not, he doesn't view them quite as human, mm. which is where the um, you know, sort of like our revulsion to Lovecraft come should uh, uh, plays a role. Obviously. So this could only be kind of like the darkest and most kind of land esque reading of Jacob's Ladder could be tied in with this. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's all a, a horrible metaphor about the perils of miscegenation. Yes. <laughs> oh shit! His girlfriend's Latina. Uh, oh. She- Cut that Cole? bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically, and you know, he's seen as being a very kind of he 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 hangs out. He's cool. He hangs out with a lot of people, even though he's like, he's a lot older than them. Oh god, the the other the other great you know the other kind of big institutional thing that we do have to talk about in terms of New York and the relationship to the the damaged person narrative is the fact that he works for the postal service, <laughs> yeah. another great sinister institution. But um, brief kind of history there, but. We get this term going postal, which has its relationship in a great degree of reality, because basically um, there's a good actual um, episode of a last podcast on the left that treats this. But it's the sense that it was seen as a kind of straightforward job that they could sort of shuffle damaged people into. But at the same time, it was an extremely stressful and extremely stressful job with long and irregular hours uh, which saw a lot of the people just completely flipping and going on killing sprees um that doesn't happen in this film but um <laughs> but like that you know they they do um, put a lot of stress on his status as a postman with a phd and there's that bit where all the lady that's another thing like why is everyone so so attracted to tim robbins he's just kind of tim he, robbins in he's it inoffensive isn't, it isn't just me that he's wearing a hairpiece. Right? I didn't notice he, that, but then again, I didn't notice the hairpiece in Rosemary's Baby. But I'm, I'm not good a, at... Who's wearing a hairpiece in Rosemary's Baby? Not Rosemary. She is? Mia Farrow, I think so. Yeah. Um, I, think I a, didn't notice it, I've been told. I hear, well, I heard but, it, but it's a hairpiece done right, and this was, and if it is a hairpiece in this, then it's a hairpiece done wrong. Mm. In fact, if you have to, I mean, if you have to question, is that his real hair? Even if it is, then it, clearly I, something's gone wrong here. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I suppose, like, 
the best the best note to end this out on is then at this ultimately unfulfilled <laughs> experience of Jacob's Ladder is the fact that a lot of the themes uh, tied up into everything we've been talking about are kind of borne out in the career of the subsequent career of Macaulay Culkin, who is <laughs> who we haven't really talked about a lot in this character in this thing, mostly because he has no lines and he's just a kind of weird cipher for. He like... does have a couple of lines, uh, but yeah. isn't it like, Daddy? Put me to bed now. Mm. So, <laughs> what about the other children? Yeah, that's I, I, I love that in that in the scene, when the scene in like the flashback scene where he's back at the house, he's putting Macaulay Culkin to bed. Like the two other children, it's like, and, oh, it's yeah, ju- but... and it is just sort of like camera cuts of them, and it's like, oh yeah, and them too. There's other children as well. Maybe... I love you, father. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they'll 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 have their comeback by just like snarking off when he's dying of fever in hospital. So. Um, but yeah, so we've got like a lot of a lot of odd ties there. I mean, one of the things like when in, in talking about kind of the uh, the kind of artistic uh, visual um, element of this film, uh, I think a lot of I think it's good to read up on uh, Edvard Munch, um, who is who paint, famous for painting the Scream and a lot of other things. Um, the Scream that is. You know that could be just an outtake from this film because it's you know the screen it, the screaming person is ethereal they're fading away towards the bottom but there are these two shadowy figures in the background who are actually more material than than mm. the screaming man is and um, that kind of tonally at least that is that chimes very closely with uh, how how kind of this demonic hellscape of New York is presented in Jacob's Ladder um, the scream you know. Um, the scream face that was then used um, as a direct reference by Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, again tangentially related to New York. Do they go to New York, or is he in New York in that in I, the first one? Because oh, I don't think he goes to New York in the second one, a, and Donald Trump is there. Yeah, I was about to say and, there must be some kind of a there's some kind of New York connection. I'm sure I, I I've never watched the film, so I can't tell you. I'm afraid, but but yeah, I only found out the other day that like yeah, the scream, the Macaulay Culkin face slap scream is. Um, is the scream of Edvard Munch, but also then, like I think, I think there is some other ev- references to Edvard Munch in the presentation of women, because I mean, uh, Edvard Munch's women are all either they're kind of powerful, sinister, but strangely alluring, um, and you know, in the same way that um, his kind of girlfriend and the other women characters are kind of presented as in the context of the film, um, and also just kind of coming back to New York, um, the um, well. I don't know if any of you have followed kind of like uh, Macaulay Culkin's more recent career, but he's um, amongst other things been um, been a member of a band called the Pizza Underground, who are a, um, a Velvet Underground tribute band. But they've re- replaced a lot of the words of the songs with pizza or cheese and um, and pizza related products. Yeah, and they were very much a kind of New York band and connected to the kind of New York art scene, which is kind of peripherally present in this film, I think. Okay, other other interesting side notes. Um, so that guy that stabs um, Jacob in the gut during Vietnam, eventually revealed, uh, that the actor playing him is Kyle Gass, who is KG, uh, later of the band Tenacious D. Well, there you go. That's him, yeah. Um, also, uh, one other thing, we're just kind of... We're just spitballing We're culling off our unused bullet points at this point, but I think it's worth saying that the script for the original... 
possibly the one that made the most sense original version of uh, the script for Jacob's Ladder was based on the um, the Ambrose Beer story of Incident at Owl Creek Bridge, which is about a guy in the Civil War, uh, if a, a, in the American Civil War, another kind of um, very, very important war in the kind of conceptual history of America. Uh, him being executed, he's executed by hanging, but the whole thing is that he falls into the river and manages to escape, but then goes on this kind of semi-mystical quest and eventually finds his way home, much like Jacob does, but it turns out he was actually dead all along and the rope never broke. That story was also an influence uh, on some, well, maybe not an influence, but has some re- um, relevance for interpreta- interpreting uh, Lost Highway ah. by David Lynch. Which we are also going to be covering in this podcast. Yes. Like, let's, let's not sooner talk- rather than later, I think. Yes. Let's, uh, let's not talk about it now. But in any <laughs> case, um, I give this a five. A five out of... Seven. A five out of seven. We're rating the films now. No. I just don't... <laughs> no, It's been not. such a difficult recording process that I don't know how to end it now. We've had, um, hopefully, be, hopefully, dear listener, you won't have picked up on it, but we've act, but this has actually been a really difficult recording session where we had to re-record a large chunk of this and have, uh, where we had some mic problems and had to re-listen to each chunk subsequent to that to make sure the problems weren't repeating. So we're too... Very tired people now uh, at the end of uh, what's been a very stressful recording process. So, so until next time, keep it. I'm weird. No, I'm <laughs> stay weird. St- keep it signal. Good. I'm Sean and I'm Lucy. Good night. Good night. <laughs>